This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. We got a lot to talk about on today's show. I'm starting off, uh, though, by talking about the bullying routine that went on as part of college game day on ESPN. Steven's got the clip. Cue it up, Steven. Well, let's start in another direction since we don't have the clip. Let's just start in another direction. With, uh, let's talk a little bit about Blazers media today. Second consecutive game oh, who cares? For Washington who cares? <laughs> we got something this black when they were 1-11 in 2009? Yeah, we were. How yeah. about that? 2-10 yeah. in 2010? You were? Yeah. That's wild. So when they sucked, you guys were showing that every we single week on the yeah. biggest college yeah. football show? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that Pay no success, did. Ryan Leaf. Yeah. <laughs> And flying old beef beside it, too. I want a West Virginia flag flying up there every single time. We don't get it. Washington State gets it. And all of a sudden, Washington State's going, not big beefs up there. Like, shut up, Washington State. I'm not sick of you. Waste of time on this show. Just wait till you get to the Palouse. They'll win you back home. Who? I doubt it. They come after Coach Corso. You know, on the subject of that, you know, after a great... Steven, stop the clip. Just stop the clip. Let's start the show over. We got to start the show over. I apologize to the listeners of the radio show, but let's just start the show all the way over. Do you have the opening music? Can we just start over? Can we start the show over? BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Got a great show for you today. We are going to talk about Blazers Media Day. We're going to talk about bullies. Oh, yeah, they're out there. We've got bullies out there that are uh, operating in the sports media landscape just like kids on the playground are operating. You're going to hear a clip from Pat McAfee who made fun of, of all things, Washington State and Oregon State, or more Washington State than anything. We'll talk about Blazers Media Day, some mixed feelings, Damian Lillard looking forward. Oregon, Washington, is it too soon to talk about that rivalry? Is it too soon to get tuned in and fired up about that rivalry? We'll talk about it on today's show. 
We'll talk about whether Colorado and USC said more about Colorado or USC. And the Beavers got right on Friday night. We'll have to deal with that as well. But I want to start with the Pat McAfee-Washington State feud. Jake Dickert, the Washington State coach, went uh, went after Washington State's uh, mistreatment on college game day a couple of weekends ago. Remember Lee Corso, Kirk Street, the gang, Pat McAfee making fun of Washington State's plight. And then you have this last weekend, McAfee firing back as uh, as Washington State is, is fighting for survival. I'm going to cue it up, Pat McAfee talking on college game day and you know jake dicker today took the high road but i didn't much like plus nobody knows that <laughs> 209 yeah, second consecutive oh, who cares? for washington who cares? <laughs> we got something this flag when they were one in 11 in 2009 you were yeah. that's wild so when they sucked you guys were showing that every were. single week on yeah. the biggest college yeah. football show yeah. 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 wow yeah, that handle was success good. ryan leaf yeah. <laughs> And flying old beef beside I, it too. With I want a State West Virginia flag too. flying up there every single every, time. Yeah. We don't get it. Washington yeah. State gets it. And all of a sudden, Washington State's going, now big beef's up there. Like, shut up, yeah. Washington State. I'm not sick of you. Uh, Wasting time on this show. Just wait till you get to the Palouse. They'll win you back over. Who? I doubt it. Well, they came after Coach Corso. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. on the subject of that, you know, after a great. <laughs> Uh, look, Washington State and Oregon State are fighting for survival in the Pac-2 conference. It's really disappointing to hear Pat McAfee on his platform acting like a bully and taking shots at Washington State over the weekend. And I, I normally wouldn't start a radio show by firing back at another media member, but Pat McAfee is way out of his lane in taking shots at Washington State and Oregon State. And I guess, you know, it's well within his right on the platform that he has on College Game Day on ESPN, along with the crew, to kind of yuck it up and draw interest to the product and give their opinions. I'm in the thought and opinion business myself. But as it pertains to making fun of Washington State, I was left listening to that clip and thinking about how classless and how low-lying that kind of criticism is. And for a punter who was a seventh-round draft pick, who presumably made his way in the NFL by getting himself an invite into a kicking contest where West Virginia noticed him and then got a scholarship and then seventh-round draft pick and then found himself in a Super Bowl in his rookie year and then has subsequently parlayed his personality into a gig on ESPN's College Game Day. I'm left a little flat that he has chosen to use that platform to go after Washington State, of all things, a program that got left out of the realignment uh, along with Oregon State and left behind in the Pac-2 conference, a program that is uh, fighting for its uh, its relevancy and its uh, position in college football. You know, it it you know what's next for Pat McAfee and the uh, in the game day crew? Are they going to go after the people that ESPN laid off, call them useless? Are they going to go after uh, 
you know, elementary school kids who are uh, wearing glasses. Like, uh, you know, I was just left feeling a little flat in watching Pat McAfee and listening to the laughter and the anger that is being uh, directed at Washington State over the weekend. I think it's a bad look. I think if Pat McAfee wants to uh, wants to make it, uh, you know, and make this who he's going to be in the business, I think he's going to turn a lot of people off. I think a lot of TVs are going to turn off, and I don't think people are going to be much interested in watching uh, what what some are calling a microcosm of what's wrong with big media as it pertains to college football. I'm not going to go that far. I just think it's I think it's a smaller thing. I think maybe this is a guy who felt threatened by Washington State pushing back a little bit, and the fans at Washington State pu- pushing back. I think probably the crew on uh, ESPN's game day is protecting Lee Corso, who at his age and after a stroke, they think, hey, don't anybody go after Corso. Truth is, some producer probably wrote the joke, the left behind bowl or the left out bowl or whatever Lee Corso said. I don't even think it's on him. But this one is on Pat McAfee, guy who went to West Virginia and fought his way into the league. He's a really good story. And I was hopeful when Pat McAfee got added to the college game day crew that it would result in, you know, a different kind of thinking. It would result in some fresh ideas and some fresh opinions. What I didn't expect is that the punter was going to turn into a bully. And that's what we have on our hands when it comes to Pat McAfee and what we saw on Saturday. Uh, we had a great show for you today. We're going to talk about Blazers Media Day. Bob Witsit, former Blazers president and GM, is going to be joining us. Uh, we will talk to him about what he makes of the Damian Lillard trade. We will uh, discuss the Mariners, who uh, became the subject of some criticism over the weekend. And we'll talk about college football, of course, because we've got a showdown looming on October 14th at Husky Stadium that I think is going to be a fantastic game as Washington and Oregon will be playing uh, a game between two highly ranked teams, probably the biggest Pac-12 regular season matchup in a decade, and it is going to get all of the eyeballs with a 12:30 kickoff that I cannot wait to see. But is it going to overshadow this weekend's games? There are some important games, including Oregon State's game at Cal, that are going on this weekend. A whole bunch of teams trying to stay, uh, keep pace with the Huskies and the Ducks in the Pac-12. USC is going to be playing. Will it overshadow this weekend totally? Because Week 7 is going to be absolutely on fire with Oregon State hosting UCLA, Oregon going to Washington. You've got Notre Dame-USC. The Pac-12 schedule in Week 7 really starts to heat up as we come down the final stretch. Uh, Blazers Media Day. Steven, you were there. What was it like? Yeah, no, it was good. Uh, you know, there's a couple big takeaways that I had. You know, Joe Cronin first, you know, talking about you know the, the whole Damian Lillard saga and the trade that happened with Dane going to the Bucks, And he flat out said, look, I, I had to do what was best for the franchise and for the organization. And, and I think, you know, we've been talking about that, John. That's that's the one thing we wanted for the Trailblazers was to do what's best for the franchise, and he went out and he did it. Now, you know, some still are arguing that the Heat package might have been better. I, I don't think so. I don't think you can argue that right now with them acquiring Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, uh, getting getting him for Drew Holiday. Like, I, I just think it was a great deal that Joe Cronin made, and it was the obvious right decision to wait. Now, it wasn't great for Dame to be put in that situation, but at the same time, Joe Cronin has an obligation to the franchise to make that deal and make it for best for the franchise. So I really liked that he came out and he just said that. The other one was uh, Scoot Henderson, the rookie, the number three pick in the draft. 
he's impressive. Man, that guy, I am uh, going to buy all the stock in Scoot Henderson that I can. He gets it. He's great in front of a mic. He just looks the part. Uh, he sounds the part. He says the right things. He wants to be the best. I just love everything about Scoot Henderson, so I cannot wait uh, to watch him play. Those were the two real big takeaways that I had, John. Blazer fans, you want to hear from Scoot Henderson? We've got him. Here he is talking about not trying to be the next Damian Lillard. Just because people think, you know, I want to be the new Damian, I don't, I don't even think like that. There's no pressure. Like, I'm Scoot Henderson, so um, I've never been pressured like that. You know, the only pressure that I have is from, from myself, the pressure I'm putting on myself to be the best version of myself that day to maximize that day and, and to go out there and, you know, kill my opponent, to go out there and just help my team out on, on the win. Um, I don't think there's no pressure of me trying to be the new name. I'm not trying to be the new name. It's a new era for a reason, so I'm here to be Scoot Henderson. Yeah, I like that. I like that Scoot's going to try to be Scoot. He shouldn't try to be Dame. Uh, then, But I also think he's a really exciting player. If he can stay healthy, he's a really exciting player, and I think Blazer fans are going to really enjoy watching him play. I, uh, I, you know, I, as much as I empathize with Blazer fans who love Damian Lillard, who are lamenting the end of an era of Portland basketball, I have to say that I think the Blazers got a nice haul for Lillard. And I know people are saying, look, even the Drew Holiday, you got two picks that could be potentially late first-round picks. You don't know that. You don't know what you could turn those into. You don't know the yet what Joe Cronin could... Can uh, you know can can get out of those picks or maybe put them together and move up in the same draft? You don't know yet, but I like what they got. It's better than what Miami was offering. The Blazers. I'm just gonna say this: the Blazers got better in this in this deal, and I like what they did with it. And I like the fact that they turned the page on the Lillard era all the way. And I didn't mind Joe Cronin at media day opening up by talking about Damian Lillard, and then getting pretty honest in in admitting that he told Damian Lillard it would be a bad idea to try to come back when Lillard, Lillard tried to rescind his trade request. I told him I personally thought it was a bad idea. The trade request had not been rescinded, and for me, I didn't want that to go into the season. I thought, well, let's just let's find something now instead, and that was my approach. Again, just to do what's best for us and find the best deal where hopefully we could all be happy and we feel like we accomplished that, where the Trailblazers were really excited where we are and we think he's got an incredible opportunity uh, to compete at the highest level in Milwaukee. Look, I, I, I think Joe Cronin had one job. Like a football coach who's charged to win games, Joe Cronin, was his job is to make the Blazers roster the best it can possibly be, to get Chauncey Billups a team that Chauncey Billups can win with, to maximize that. It's his job to line up with the plan that the owners are putting together, if there is a plan, and hand that and be the conduit that, that hands that off to head coach Chauncey Billups. In the end, I am left looking at what Joe Cronin did, and I understand why Blazer fans have questions, but I can't blame a guy who decided that this was the best move for the organization. Looking back, there's always... There's always things you would like to do better, and you know I've reflected a lot on that. But at the same time, I had to do what I had to do to do what was best for us. And the process could have gone a little more smoothly and been less clunky, but end of the day, the result is what I was most interested in, and that was putting the Trailblazers on the right path. 
Getting the Blazers on the right path. Did he get them on the right path? I think he did. 503-417-7575 is a number. I want you to tell me what you thought of the performance today from Joe Cronin, what questions you might still have as a Blazer fan, and are you ready to turn the page into, are we going to call it the Scoot Henderson era of Blazers basketball? Is he good enough yet for us to call it that? I don't know if we can yet. I think we have to wait and see. Uh, whether or not it's his era or not. But Chauncey Billups did sound like a uh, a guy who was ready to try to put together his team. Young, but not outgunned, said Chauncey Billups. But I don't think it's a disadvantage at all, you know. And I heard Joe say this, but we also got to realize how young we are, man. You know, we're so dang young, man. It's it's it's, it's going to be fun, but there's going to be some... You know, there's going to be some tough trying times out there because of our youth. Um, but, no, I don't see that as a disadvantage. Trying to manage expectations already. But I think it, in in some weird way, a byproduct of what we've seen happen from the pivot from Damian Lillard into the Scoot Henderson or DeAndre Ayton uh, era of Blazers basketball or whatever we're going to call this transition time, one of the, one of the things that's not being talked about is – the, the fact that Chauncey Billups finally gets a chance to have his own team, his own roster, show us if he can coach. A lot is being made of you know Lillard's landing spot in Milwaukee and what did Cronin say or not say or did the Blazers do right by Damian Lillard or deal him dirty. But what people really aren't talking about is the fact that Chauncey Billups walked into a locker room that was dominated by Damian Lillard. It was his team. He tried to coach that team and I think it really was a mixed bag. We really couldn't tell most times if can Chauncey coach, can he not coach, how much of this is him, not him. I think we're going to get a much better idea this season what Chauncey Billups can do and whether or not he finally has some pieces, especially on the defensive end, that are coachable. Because I just don't think he had that with the Blazers with any kind of consistency. I, for one, am glad that the Blazers have made this move. Because, you know, I started the summer by saying they have to absolutely maximize what they're going to get for Lillard. They have to get over the top. They have to, uh, you know, they've got to get the best possible outcome when it comes to draft picks or assets. And and while maybe waiting's a little bit longer might have got them that, by the end of the summer, I was with Steven and others who were saying, this thing's been hanging overhead for too long, and you can't go into the season with it sort of just, you know, dirtying up or muddying up the waters of the season. And I think the Blazers made it clear that they felt the same way, that they were just ready to do the best possible deal, and that wasn't going to be with Miami. I don't think there was anything nefarious about it. I just don't think Miami had what the Blazers were shopping for. All right, we got a great show for you today. We're going to play Punch and Audio in the next segment. We're going to talk about college football. It was a big weekend. Bob Witsit will be along at 4 o'clock. You got the BFT statewide. I don't know. I don't know what got into Pat McAfee. Maybe he'll have uh, some second thoughts about taking shots at Washington State. Just seems like a weird thing for a national guy on his platform to get himself preoccupied with, to go after Washington State. Like, really? Like, you know, what are you going to do next? Drive by elementary schools and tease kids who have braces? Like, it's just, it's a weird hill to climb up on. If you are Pat McAfee on his stage with his platform, and I'm one of these people that was really excited to see him on that show because I thought, oh, he's going to bring some fresh ideas. He'll bring some new things. 
you know, Corso's getting old. Love the guy, but he's aging. You have um, some of the regular people that they cycle through, including Desmond Howard on the show, that just don't move the needle. I, you know, not enough opinion for me. And then I thought, well, here comes Pat McAfee. He'll he'll have opinions, but like on Washington State, like that's the that's the uh, you know the uh, it's it's like the weakest wildebeest in the jungle. You know, he's going after Washington State. And then Jake Tickert, the Washington State coach, comes back today and says, you know, hey, he's just going to bury the hatchet. He's got no beef. You know, he just wants – Jake Tickert just wants to coach football. Washington State's just trying to find a place to play next year and beyond. Wants to matter. And uh, here you got Pat McAfee going after Washington State. Give me a break. Let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Shannon Sharp going after Trent Dilfer. Did you see Trent Dilfer on his sideline rant on Saturday? Dilfer was really upset, lost his cool. Shannon Sharp went after him. Punch it. I played with Trent for a year in, in, uh, in Baltimore, and we did win the Super Bowl together. And uh, we've stayed, we've remained in contact since then, so I consider him a friend. But you can't undress your coach like that. You can't undress a player like that. Now, in a meeting, if you want to have something to say, some choice words, and I think there's, there, there's still a bridge, or, or cro- uh, the term crossing the Rubicon, a, a place that you can go too far, but don't do that publicly, Trent. I'm disappointed that you would do that publicly because you wouldn't want a coach to do that to you. And yeah. that's a man that you're talking to like that. Yeah. And you're, 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 the obscenities and, 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 and the vulgarity that you're using and, and for the world to see. Yeah, Trent Dilfer on that sideline at UAB goes after his assistant coach, screaming at him, shoving tight end Bo Dawson on the sideline. You know, it 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 was uh, – he goes after the assistant coach on the sideline, and then video comes out about him shoving Bo Dawson, a player in 2021, at uh, the private school Lipscomb University that he coached at before then. And Dilford, like there's a – there's a, I guess a, a portrayal of Dilford that is forming that isn't flattering. Right, as a head football coach, I'll go beyond Shannon Sharp because Shannon Sharp is—he's faced—he's focused on the man-to-man respect angle, and I, I even think it goes deeper than that. I think as the coach of a school, whether you're at a private liberal arts school or whether you're on the sideline at University of Alabama Birmingham, that was the, that was all over social media. You have to portray yourself in a way that speaks for the entire program you are in charge of players you are in charge of coaches you got to be in charge of yourself we all lose our cool we all get frustrated hell off the top of the show today i started the show over but i think there has to be an underlying respect for the task that people are trying to pull off his assistant coach is not trying to you know cause a penalty on the field tight end 
isn't trying to infuriate his coach. You have to have, I think, perspective on the fact that everybody's just trying to do their best. And when something goes wrong, you got to understand it. you got to figure it out. you be screaming at people, especially going after a coach the way Dilfer did. If Moment was, of frustration there. If it was 1999 and not 2023, would this be a story? I still think it is. I think there's a video element to it that there wouldn't be that much video of it in 1999. But it... Look, I covered Bobby Knight. I saw him do some things. I didn't see him do that. Like, I didn't see the worst of Bobby Knight in the 1998-1999 season, but I saw him throw clipboards. I saw a guy who was dealing with anger, an anger management issue. And Trent Dilfer looks like he's got at least, like, some anger management stuff going on. Paul Feinbaum goes after USC. USC looked great. For about three quarters on Saturday. And then USC's defense opened the gates for Colorado. Paul Feinbaum says he's not impressed. Punch I think USC, USC's defense is a complete fraud. I mean, I, I was told this week by one of our data people how much better they are. No. They're not. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that USC is not winning the national championship. Uh, I mean, right, let's, let's just get that established right now. I mean, for Caleb Williams to do what he's doing and 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 have to sit there at the end of the game uh, against a team that they are they are superior to on every on every level uh, and have to hold on for an onside kick is absurd. It was absurd. This was a blowout game at halftime. Thirty-four fourteen at halftime. Forty-eight twenty-seven at the end of the third quarter. And, oh, yeah, 48-41 at the end of regulation, and here comes an onside kick. Feinbaum's right. USC is 5-0. and They are a top-10 team. And I'm left looking at USC on Saturday going, they're going to lose to Notre Dame. They're going to lose if they play Washington, Oregon. Hell, they might lose, they might lose to uh, a couple of other teams in the Pac-12. I'm not impressed with USC. And, you know, I don't know if Lincoln Riley could fire his defensive coordinator, Alex Grinch, midseason, but I'm sure that he's thinking about it. Was your takeaway more credit to Colorado or more of this is on USC's bad defense? It's on USC's bad defense. Colorado's not bad. I mean, Shadur Sanders is not bad, but Colorado has not been able to run the ball this year, and they ran the ball a little bit on USC. And, you know, they did some things against USC they couldn't do against Oregon. They did some things against USC they couldn't do against Colorado State. That's the thing. Does that explain maybe how good Oregon's defense actually could be? I came away from that game going Oregon won it, you know? Like, USC didn't win. Colorado didn't win. Like, Oregon won that game. And Washington later. I mean, how many points is Washington going to score on USC? Crazy. A lot. It's going to be ugly. C.J. McCollum, former Blazer, reacting to the Damian Lillard trade. Punch it. I was very surprised. I was stunned. And obviously, Damian's my guy. I was with him last weekend in Oregon for Harvest. And we kind of knew something was going to happen. But I didn't expect Milwaukee. I don't know that he expected Milwaukee. And when you heard some of the things that were being discussed in terms of Toronto, Brooklyn, him obviously wanting to go to Miami. 
Milwaukee makes a lot of sense if you really think about what he said his goals and aspirations were in terms of winning championship. But I will say that just like the rest of the world, I was shocked and I was interested in seeing who was involved in the deal and how they made the three-team trade. I like how CJ just gets it in there that he, that you know, during harvest, he happened to be up, harvested his winery, happened to be up, uh, you know, checking out Damian Lillard. Uh, I think... I think it's going to be weird to see Lillard in another team's uniform. I think it's going to be weird to see him play. It's going to be even weirder when he comes to Portland and he has to go to the visiting locker room. Strange times, but it, it's, you know, again, show business, not show friends. And I think if you're a Blazer fan, you have to recognize, I mean, I think it was said on this show by Ben Golliver months and months ago when we were talking about the possibility of Lillard being traded, Washington Post NBA writer Ben Golliver joined us and he said, hey, there was, there's life after Bill Walton. There's life after Brandon Roy. There's life after Clyde Drexler. There's going to be life after Damian Lillard and we're going to get a taste of it this coming season. Will Scoot Henderson be enough? We'll find out. Scoot talking about the joy he finds in basketball. Part of Blazer Media Day today. I think the, the most joyful thing about basketball is the, the how together the, the togetherness um man basketball is it's a team sport it's a team sport you know if, you, if you're a one-man army you can't win at all and I think my biggest thing is uh, I'm a winner so uh, when I'm with people that, that I love to be with that's good vibes um, I think that's the that's the best thing about basketball and, and the sharing and and all things that all things teammates you know all things team and that's something that I love about basketball and then the competitiveness that that comes with it Man, I just love to compete. Like it's, it's some when I get on the floor, like I said before, some some comes out of me when when I get on that floor, and you know I feel that fire in me. Yeah, th- this is good stuff from Scoot. I like that he's talking. I like that we're getting to know him a little bit. But ultimately, he will be judged on how well he can play, and I think he can play. So then it goes to how healthy can he be. I didn't like it that he got banged up in summer league. We've seen enough of that in Portland to know otherwise. But I, I'm just wishing and hoping for Scoot Henderson to stay healthy, be healthy, play healthy in his rookie year. Let's see what he can be. Meanwhile, DeAndre Ayton basically was told today that he's not going to be the focal point of the Blazers' offense. I have to think he didn't love hearing that. But Ayton says he's going to change the narrative on his work ethic. What's been the criticism of him? His motor punching. It's not counting anything. Look, look at the position I was playing in, the environment I was playing in. Um, you know, it can sometimes put toll on your mental. You know, I'm, to be honest, I think I checked every list in the box, so a motor should not be anything of that. You know, um, I have accomplished a lot of things where my motor is not a question. Um, playoffs, no matter what it is, I, I play the best. I can play. I play hard as I can play. Um, you know, that won't be a question at all. That's one of the reasons why I told you guys this summer that I'll be changing the narrative. Um, you know, I have. I'm with an organization that wants me and wants me to succeed. So um, there's a lot more passion when you feel that mentally, and you know, you're seeing that physically as well. So um, it'll be a lot more grit. And a lot more domination this year. Domination. Part of his nickname. I'll get to that in a second. But meanwhile, at Phoenix Suns Media Day, 
Matt Ishbia, the owner of the Suns, made it clear to media members there that it was a quote-unquote unanimous decision to trade Aiden and that they feel that Yusuf Nurkic is a better fit. I hope he hears that. A lot of talk about changing the narrative. A lot of talk about his nickname. Dominance. I bring dominance. My name is Dominating. Um, me, I play with a lot of passion. Um, you guys can tell. Um, a lot of grit as well, but, you know, I try to take the hypocrisy out of the game where, you know, I'm telling my teammate one thing, I'm doing the other. You know, I'm more like a team player who, you know, I'll, I'll take the sacrificial, I'll make the sacrificial decision and take myself out. And, you know, less shots for me, but, you know, when it comes to winning, I'll be the, 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 the down and the gritty guy to, to get the job done, close out possessions and, you know, just take the blame on things like that. Look, uh, I think he has to know on some level that the Phoenix Suns would not have given up on him if there weren't something wrong. So you can say all you want, hey, you know, here's my nickname. I'm changing the narrative. I like that. That's fine. I'm not knocking that. But you've got to go out and do it on the court. you got to prove it. Chauncey Billups likes his centers. Punch it. We, by far, have the most athletic two fives, you know, as a combo in the league. And we'll, we will, you know, teams will understand that when they play against us on both sides of the floor. DeAndre Ayton, Robert Williams. You like the centers, Stephen. I love the centers, uh, especially, you know, like you said, two real athletic centers. And this is coming off, you know, Yusuf Nurkic for the last, you know, handful of seasons where he's not the most athletic guy, uh, even before the leg injury. And then after the leg injury, of, of course, he's never going to be that again. So it's going to be a change of pace. It's going to be guys that can, you know, go pick and roll and they can catch a lob at the rim for an alley-oop. It's going to be guys who can protect the rim and be those type of players. You know, they have their own flaws, but uh, it, it's going to be a different type of center, which I am excited to see, you know, because I'm, I'm just so used to use of Nurkic for the last few years. These guys are different type of players, so I'm excited and the defense should be better because of it. But Hayden's coming to Media Day. He's not the first player in NBA history to show up at Media Day and go, hey, I'm turning over a new leaf. Hey, I'm going to change the narrative about me. And often, the narrative doesn't change. Do you have confidence that people in Portland are going to leave this next season going, wow, we got a steal in DeAndre Ayton? Uh, no, not confident at all on that, because uh, I think you're 100% right. It's hard, especially in the NBA, to change that narrative once it is around you, because that's just kind of how you play. It's it's tough to change at the age of 25. Like, you know what, all of a sudden, I'm going to be a guy who hustles on every single play. Like, that doesn't really how it works. So, no, I, I think there's going to be a lot of frustration, especially with DeAndre Ayton, because we expect so much out of him, and he gets paid a lot of money. And I would I would say a little overpaid for his position, but you know he is better than Yusuf Nurkic. But there's going to be a lot of frustrating moments where you're like, man, why, why does he, what is he doing? He's in the wrong position. Why is he taking that shot? Why is he going for that defensive play? So there will be some frustration, but I think at the end of the day, John, he is better than Yusuf Nurkic. And for me... He's on the same wavelength, same age length as, you know, a Shaden Sharp and yeah. Scoot Henderson. He can grow with them. Let's be real about Nurk. Let's be real about Aiden. Nurk was strange, pouty, could uh, underwhelm you on a given night. Um, hard, you know, petty in some ways. Sometimes he'd make some petty comments. Aiden has the reputation of not being a hard worker. Are you okay trading Nurkic's flaws for Aiton's. 
Yes, I am. I, I always am under the sense of, like, in the NBA, I want the talent over everything. I want talent over hard work. I want talent over, you know, athleticism. I just want the skills. I want the talent. And DeAndre Ayton has that. I mean, he is a giant of a human. He even said, you know, I'm a man among – or uh, Avery Simon said he's a man amongst boys when he's out there. DeAndre Ayton is. And, like, the, he really is. He's that big. And he's that much of a presence, very athletic. So I'll take that all day rather than the skills that Nurk had, you know, whether he can shoot the three or make the pass. But there's a lot of evidence that DeAndre Ayton's going to take plays off, especially defensively. And it will frustrate me a lot, and I know it will frustrate a lot of fans. But I think ho- hopefully it is one of those things where he can actually, you know, come in and change the narrative and Chauncey can get through to him. I'm just not holding my breath on that one. Coming up, I'll talk to you about Jonathan Smith and Dan Lanning. Two very different weeks for them. But they're still both appearing to work towards their next opponent. Landing and Smith, you'll hear both of their uh, news conferences or parts of it coming up. Bob Witsit, former Blazers general manager and president, coming up top of the hour. He's got a book coming out, Game Changer. We're going to talk to Witsit about the book. But frankly, I'm more interested in his assessment of the Damian Lillard trade and what Joe Cronin might have gone through in trying to get that deal done. Cronin spoke today as part of Blazers Media Day. Over the weekend, uh, Dwayne Hankins, the president of the Blazers, reached out to me, extending an olive branch, I think. Uh, you know, I think if you're a Blazers president, you're in a really hard spot right now. And I think you're trying to sell season tickets and you're trying to sell sponsorships and you know that People, uh, fans are upset or frustrated or at least discouraged. You know that some media members are rolling their eyes. I mean, I'm banging the drum for new ownership all the time. So I'm interested to see, you know, if Hankins wants what he wants to talk about or whatever. But he reached out to me, and I appreciated that because I think uh, that the Blazers franchise, in a lot of ways, has lost contact with some of the fan base. And frankly, you know, I'm just watching ownership. And I don't see a lot there to get behind as a media member. Like, I would love to be banging the drum going, they've got great ownership. Oh, they've got a great plan. Oh, man, I'm really impressed with how the GM, the coach, the ownership group, how that plan lines up. You can really see what the Blazers are going to do. I don't have that right now. What I do have is I think the Blazers did what was best for themselves in the Lillard trade. I think they got better. And they got a little more hopeful. And they removed the cloud of Damian Lillard's, you know, presence from training camp. And that's where I'm at right now. And I want to see, I want to see what, what uh, Scoot Henderson can be. I want to see if DeAndre Ayton is serious about turning over a new leaf. Best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. He's going to have to win there in a way that, you know, we're not used to seeing. But I think it's going to be fun to see... Still, though, there's a to-be-determined element here that is ownership. It's just it's going to hang over the franchise, not in quite the same way that Lillard would have, but, you know, Blazer fans are going to walk into Motor Center knowing that, hey, this is a franchise that doesn't really have an ownership plan, doesn't have a person, doesn't have a group that is dictating here is the master plan. The Blazers used to do that. Every year in the Paul Allen era, they, would, they had this master plan that they would release Team president and GM would put it together. I'm sure Paul Allen signed off on it. And it was like, here's our plan for the season. Here's how our roster lines up. Here's the assets we have. It was kind of a state of the union that the Blazers put out. And I got my hands on that thing 
couple of times, you know, maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, at least they have a plan. Like, right now, it kind of feels like that book would be a coloring book or something. Like, you know, hey, we're drawing pictures of a championship trophy. I don't know. Like, what's the plan, Jody? That's that's what I want to know, and I, I wish she would come out and talk more. But I digress. Dan Lanning and Jonathan Smith, football coaches at Oregon and Oregon State, have very different weeks. Lanning is now two Saturdays away from playing what will be the biggest football game of his coaching career at Oregon. Oregon's going to Washington. It's going to be a big game. It's going to have a, a prime audience. You know, I was told this morning, like I was trying to figure out when these games were going to be played, and I was told, hey, Oregon and Oregon State are both going to be happy. You know, TV sources were telling me that Oregon and Oregon State would be happy, and I took that to mean that neither one would be on the Pac-12 network in two weekends. And it's true, they're not. On Saturday, October 14th, Oregon will play at Washington. Two ranked teams. Top 10 matchup. It'll be a 12.30 kickoff on ABC. Dan Lanning says this week, his bye week, isn't an off week, though. Yeah, we're not going into bye week. We're going into work week, right? Uh, our guys know what our goals are, what we have to accomplish, right? And, you know, a lot of their teams are going to relax this week. We're going to get better, right? And, uh you know, we start exactly how we expect to start, right? But we're about to go play a real opponent there. Those, those guys are playing good ball up north, so uh, we got to bring our best. It's got to be one of our great preparations. We got some really tough teams down the road, so we got to continue to build our and play our best ball moving forward. He had four rights in there. Did you catch that? That's his crutch phrase or his crutch word. He'll go right. <laughs> you know, we've got a uh, big game this week, right? And we're going to get ready, right? But uh, all coaches have them. All radio show hosts have them as well. But Dan Lanning saying not going into bye week, going into work week. The Ducks, uh, I, I hope they approach the Washington game with the same kind of focus that, that they approach the Colorado game. It's going to be tough to win on the road. It's going to be difficult to slow down a Washington offense that has had its way. But i got to tell you, I'm really impressed with Oregon's defense at this point of the season. Here comes, though, the biggest test for defensive coordinator Tosh Lapoy, biggest test of his tenure at Oregon, biggest test of, you know, Oregon and Dan Lanning's tenure. We didn't get to see Caleb Williams and USC against Oregon last year. That was the game I wanted. They didn't play in the regular season. Oregon didn't get to the conference title game. This is the closest thing to a dream scenario that you could have if you were ABC a couple of Saturdays from now as you got a 12.30 p.m. kickoff in Seattle. You have two really good teams that are going to play each other. Meanwhile, Jonathan Smith has a little different task. Yeah, in two weeks, Oregon State will be home at 5 o'clock on Fox playing against UCLA, but that's not the game Jonathan Smith's focused on. He's coming off a win over Utah on Friday night that was a little bit like moving boulders around the quarry. That's how I described it in print. Oregon State's defense, I thought, played really well against a limited Utah offense. And Oregon State's offense did enough against a pretty good Utah defense to, to win that game pretty easily, 21-7. But this weekend, Oregon State's at Cal at 7 o'clock Saturday. Game is on the Pac-12 networks. And Jonathan Smith took a moment to talk about his offense. There's a lot to like, obviously, when you, you win a game. Offensively, I did think the first drive, watching the execution there, and to be able to get seven points to open the game was huge, get our fan base into the thing, which was awesome all night. Um, even then, 
you know, Silas Bolden, third and ten, we throw an underneath ball, he breaks tackle to extend the drive, we go and finish the thing. Damian had a great run at the end of it. So to to start the game offensively, I thought it was huge. Throughout the night, found ways to get explosive in the pass game. Again, Silas, but you know, just Irish making some plays, DJ making some good throws. I thought that was important in the in the game. I know Jonathan's trying to hype up his offense a little bit, and I understand why. You want your guys to have confidence. You want DJ to feel better. Yeah, and I did. I do think he played okay, but you know, against a good Utah defense, played okay. But I still thought it was a little bit of a clunky performance offensively. Utah, you know, really stout against the run. I thought Oregon State did all right in the run game, and you know, had a couple of backs with 88 yards each, and that's solid by Oregon State's standard. It's solid. It's not spectacular by their standard, but it's solid. It was enough. And Silas Bolden won the game. I mean, he just made a couple of terrific plays, one on a catch, one on a, one on a run. He was the difference maker in the game. And, you know, save for him, this would have been a really ugly 10-7 to game or a 7-7 to game they'd still be playing. But I thought Bolden, you know, was the difference maker on offense, and they ran the ball enough. And so I just think Oregon State was okay on offense. But... It told me, like, when you look at the, I guess, the bottleneck of teams in the middle of the Pac-12 conference, and I'll put UCLA and Utah in there, Washington State in there, too, even though they're undefeated and coming off a bye week. I think that there's going to be an outside chance that one of those teams can slip through and challenge Oregon, Washington, or USC for a shot or a spot in the conference title game. Can it be Oregon State? I don't know. I think they're in the conversation. Obviously, with one loss and the loss coming to Washington State, they're half a step behind right now. But I thought winning the game on Friday was a really important statement. And really, I think they uh, they beat up Utah. And Utah was already beat up coming into the game. And I, I was impressed by that. All right, Bob Witsit's coming up. Former Blazers president and GM. You're going to want to be here for it. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, the Trailblazers showed up to Media Day today trying to, uh, trying to craft a narrative for the season, trying to close the books on the Damian Lillard era. Trying to open a new chapter. Introduce uh, DeAndre Ayton. Introduce uh, Scoot Henderson officially. Manage expectations, maybe? I don't know. But I'm here for it. Our next guest has been through some media days. As the former general manager and team president of the Trailblazers. Former executive both in the NBA and the NFL. Also, uh, general manager of the Seahawks, excuse me, general manager of the Supersonics, and team president of the Seattle Seahawks. Commonly known as Trader Bob. He's now written a book. I'm excited to talk with Bob Witsit, former Blazers president and general manager. Now an author. His book's out next week. He's joining us now. Uh, the name of the book, if you're interested, Game Changer, out next week. Get it on Amazon. Grab it at a bookstore. Bob Witsit, thank you for making time. My pleasure, John. How are you? 
I'm doing well. A media day is being held across the country. Do you miss Do you miss media day as a president or GM? You know, I love my two favorite times of the year. Really, were the playoffs, obviously, and training camp. Uh, media day really, for me, didn't you know wasn't my favorite thing, but it was a very important thing. I think it was really more fun for the players because. You know, they've had their long summer, they've been away, they've worked out, and it's a chance to, everybody's coming back fresh, creating some excitement. But really, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to get on the court and start playing. Give me an idea. What did you love about training camp? Is it is it the hope? Is it the anticipation? Is it seeing how the roster comes together? What was it? Well, it's really the only chunk of time during the year where you can have an extended period of time with practices. You know, I don't know if the rules have changed dramatically, but we used to do two-a-days. So you could get a number of days of just practicing, teaching, developing, uh, watching different combinations. Guys were playing hard because they were fresh. Once you get into the season, you play so many games that even on the off days, you know, some of your guys couldn't practice full throttle because they were beat up and tired. So to really get a chance for everybody on the roster, for the most part, going hard for three, four, five days in a row. It's, and, and, you know, the competitive juices and different combinations. And it's really the the time you can experiment a little bit. But, uh, um, yeah, and, and, again, everybody's starting out fresh, so we're, we're all thinking this is our year. And, uh, you know, sky's the limit. Blazers were in a uh, pinch with Damian Lillard asking for a trade. Joe Cronin as the general manager, and you got Burt Cold involved with this, Jody Allen involved. What kind of position did did Lillard and Aaron Goodwin put the Blazers in, in your mind, as you watched it from 20,000 feet? Well, I can appreciate it. Uh, I think, first of all, I'm usually a pretty hard grader, and I think Joe Cronin did a really nice job, uh, so I'll start with that. But there's not too many times where you are in a position where you're at, being asked to trade a franchise player. Matter of fact, there's not that many franchise players. And uh, I went through it twice. I did it once with Jack Sigma in Seattle. I did it with Clyde Drexler in Portland. And then when, when Dame Lillard asked out, it's it's a lot of pressure on, on the organization, on the community. You know, fans are torn. You know, you can never get enough. You know, it's never the right deal. But when, it, when it's all said and done, I think they handled it well. Um, I didn't think Miami was going to be the right deal, and they were patient. They figured out what made sense for them. I think they got the best deal for the Blazers, and uh, it also worked out for for Dame. I think he got to go to one of the three or four teams he was hoping to go to, so he gets a chance to to go for a championship. And I think uh, Portland, they really identified where they are now, where they're going. They've got a young team. They've got kind of a core you know, when you, you, you take eight and then you take, you know, Scoot Henderson and Sharp and Simons and Grant. I mean, they've kind of said, here's our group. They're young. They're all under contract or committed uh, to the team for the next three, four years. Um, and then they've got some future picks. So you can't just sort of stay in the middle. And, and they really weren't going anywhere the last couple of years. So, um, you know, they figured out the direction they want to go. They did it. And, uh, uh, I applaud them for that. I think that's what you have to do. What does a trade like that do to the rest of the NBA? Because in your time, you made deals like that, and it and it felt like other franchises had to react to it. Uh, you know, when when the Blazers make that deal, 
you know, what what happens in the Eastern Conference as other teams look at Milwaukee? Well, when you trade a guy like Lillard, really there's not that many teams who probably want him for the simple standpoint of you have to be in a position where you think you can win a championship. And so how many of those teams really exist and how many of them have that need and how many of them have that capability to put the deal together? But if I'm a contending team, you know, you can pick whether it's the East or the whole league. Um, Milwaukee put a few more chips into the pot and they said we're going for it I think they also did it because Giannis was making a little bit of noise about he wanted to make sure the organization was committed for for winning in the future and bringing a guy like Lillard on board says that so you know Boston reacted they did the other piece of the Portland trade by getting Holiday who's a really solid player um you know if you're in the west you're you know all the teams that think they have a chance to go for it you know, it doesn't mean there's some deal they can go make, but they probably don't like it when a really good team gets a little bit better. So um, there is a ripple effect, but there's not always another move that can be made. The, you know, when when we unpack the trade, it comes out, Damian Lillard telling people that he asked for the trade uh, demand to be rescinded, Joe Cronin coming back saying, you know, he didn't think that was a good idea. Um, what would you have done in that situation? Player you know, asks you to be traded and then says, I don't want to be traded. I mean, I think with Drexler, when he asked to be traded, you kind of told him you weren't going to do a bad deal and you took him all the way to the trade deadline. Yeah, I think with Clyde it was a little different. He wanted out, but uh, I had to. he never changed his mind. He wanted out. Yeah. I had to sort of work with him a little bit. He wasn't going to come to training camp, and then he wasn't going to – go to Japan with us. He, he was trying to put the leverage on us to, to get a deal done instantly. And I, I convinced him at some point in time that, Clyde, the best thing you can do is play, be Clyde Drexler, let the league see you're still Clyde Drexler, and then it give me more opportunity to find a home for you. And he did that, and he played very well, and eventually he got, he got his ring in Houston. So once a player tells you they won out, if they then kind of do a flip-flop on you, I'd be a little bit leery because, you know, you got to be all in. And if you said you want out all summer and then you do a quick I want out, odds are you're probably going to later on say you want out again. So I think Portland realized it was probably right for both sides to make a move. And frankly, when Dame doesn't ask out if the organization thinks it's still best to make a move, it's a little harder for them because – when your um, your player like Dame is, is is not asked out and he still wants to be there, it puts extra pressure on the team when they do make the move. So uh, he loosened the pressure up a little bit by asking for a, a trade. Uh, they did the right thing, and I think I think all I think both parties would be happy when it's all over. Bob Witsit with us. Uh, you've written a book, Game Changer. What made you want to write the book? Well, it's you know I'm not an author, so that's a great question. It, it was probably a two or three year project. It was a combination of um, you know I do a lot of events and people are always asking me to to write the stories down and to put them somewhere. And I thought you know I just completed law school. I had some free time on my hands, so I thought I'd dedicate that to writing. And um, you know it was a chance to tell a lot of the you know the stories from the Blazers days, the Sonics days, the Seahawks days, but it also allowed me to put a, put other elements in there. I, I wrote a chapter on how to negotiate, and I, I probably have a dozen or so tips, and I, I have real-life examples of how I use them in, in player transactions or deals with agents. 
Um, I did things on the other end of the spectrum. I, I, I rated the best all-time NBA players and best coaches. I, 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 I put some pages in there on how to get a job in pro sports. I, I told people what the actual job of a GM is. It's a little bit of a something for everybody kind of book. It's an easy read. Uh, there's 16 pages of pictures. So it's a little bit of a memory lane. It's a little bit of a memoir. It's a little bit of a book for younger people that might want to get in the business of sports. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, I've been pretty happy with the reception. I've had people inside the league read it and they've liked it. And I've had people who don't even like sports have liked it for different reasons. So, um, again, I don't think it's going to be my calling to be an author, but I'm, I'm proud of it and happy I was able to get it done. And as soon as we get done promoting it, I can move on to my next project. <laughs> well, give me an idea. Blazer stories that are in there. For Blazer fans listening, what would they learn more about? Well, you know, well, we were just talking about Clyde, so you get a little bit of the behind the scenes of how, how the Clyde Drexler deal unfolded. You get a real detailed uh, play-by-play on how I was able to get Pippen, uh, Scotty Pippen, in a Blazers uniform. You might get some of the uh, kind of the fun goofiness, if you will. Uh, you know, there was one game we were playing the Lakers. We were beating them pretty bad. J.R. Ryder was having a fantastic game. And, and I, I tell this story that all of a sudden he got booed once. Uh, it was in it was in Portland. And he literally, in the middle of the game, pointed to his girlfriend, asked her to come down. He, in his uniform in the third quarter, he, he, he walked to the parking garage. I followed him out. I said, what are you doing? He said, I got booed. I'm out of here. And I said, JR, are you crazy? <laughs> and, and he might be. I mean, we, we, you know, there's some debate there. But I said, you, you leave this building. You're suspended. He got in his car in his uniform with his girlfriend and drove out. So I had to suspend them for a couple of games. So there's always a little something wow. going on behind the scenes. I got some, I, I got some great Rasheed Wallace stories in there. There's just a, there's the fun elements. Then there's the real how to make a deal elements. There's the and as painful as it was, I I, I relived the uh, 2000 conference championship when uh, we lost that heartbreaker to the Lakers when we were up by uh, 13 in the fourth quarter. So. You know some of the some of the good trades, some of the trades I'd like to have back, but there's actually quite a bit of blazer blazer stories in there, and um, you know you, you got to relive them. They, you know some of them worked out really well, some of them you'd like to have a do-over, and uh, and a little bit of everything in between. A lot of Sabonis stuff. I like Sabonis, and so I you know got some Sabonis stories in there, and it's still hard to believe that little Demontis who was uh, yeah. running around the practice court when Arvidas was playing is. Now an all-star, so, uh, you know, time marches on. A lot, of, a lot you, of great memories. If you get Sabonis younger, what happens to the Blazers? Well, I wasn't there, but I honestly think if they would have got uh, Arvidas uh, in the late 80s, certainly by the 90s season, I think they would have won at least one championship. They had, you know, that three-year period there where they were in the finals twice, and I think... Uh, I think a Sabonis on that team might have been enough to, to push him over. But, you know, who knows? Nobody knows. But uh, that was a great Blazers team. But um, I think any team, no matter how good you are, uh, would be better with Arvidas on the team because he was a, a team player, a little bit like uh, Jokic today. Jokic is probably better today. But uh, Arvidas was a, a passing big man who could do a little bit of everything. So, I think with the athletes that team had and the passing and the cutting, 
Um, I think he could have added one more dimension. But, again, nobody knows. It's just an opinion. Um, that was a great, great team they had. But I think he would have been even a, a, a greater addition to it. You know, uh, Bob Witsitz, our guest, former Blazers president and GM. You've been part of different franchises, had, uh, you know, the pleasure and challenge of working for Paul Allen, both with the Seahawks and the Blazers. What, what was that period of time like for you as an executive trying to win? And as I understand it, by the end in Portland, I don't know how many businesses you were running, but you had a lot of other things on your plate besides basketball. Yeah, I write about that in the book, too. Um, I had too many jobs. I think I was the president of, like, 15 companies, the, the big ones being the Portland Trailblazers, and then it was the Rose Garden Arena and the Seattle Seahawks, and the, then it was called Seahawks Stadium. Obviously, those four jobs alone are, are massive, and to do it in two different cities was pretty much impossible. And I'd always say, let's get other people to run some of these things, because all I really wanted to do was run the basketball team. But um, we did what we, we had to do to get involved to try to save the Seahawks so they wouldn't uh, move to Los Angeles. And, um, you know, Paul didn't like to deal with a lot of people, and, and, and he dealt with me, so he kind of made me responsible for more things. But it was not a, a, a was that good for me? And I don't think some of the companies were getting my best work because I, I just didn't have enough time. And that's when I finally said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. This is my last season in Portland. Uh, I'll still do the stuff up in Seattle. But, uh, you know, we went back and forth during my last season. But I think he eventually realized, that, you know, I meant it. I wanted to have some family time. I wanted to see my son finish up uh, his last two years in high school. And, uh, and again, I, I think these jobs are so big, you can't have one guy doing everything. It's just not not good for the person, not good for the organization. Uh, there's just too much at stake. So um, I made the break, and, and you know, then Paul started, you know, finding my replacements in Portland. And, for, you know, for a couple of years he was hoping I'd come back to Portland, and I think when he figured out I wasn't going to do that anymore, he ultimately, uh, a few years later, fired me from the Seahawks because – that was kind of on autopilot, and, um, you know, when I said I was making the break, I made the break, and I did not go back, and, uh, you know. But anyway, Paul was a good owner. He, uh, you know, one thing I'll say, he really wanted to win a championship in Portland, and he was passionate about the Blazers, loved basketball. Um, you know, he was, he was demanding, which is not a problem. You want owners that are demanding. And he was committed. He was absolutely committed to uh, – trying to bring a championship to Portland, and he certainly had no problem spending money to try to make the team better in all areas. Uh, they didn't even have a practice facility when I got there, and I told him, hey, we got to build one, and he, he didn't balk. He said, no problem, do what you need to do. So, um, you know, you get an owner like Paul, uh, you've got a chance, and that's really all you can ever ask for. What was it like when you brought a deal to Paul Allen? You bring in a prospective trade or a free agent signing. What's that conversation like? Well, it's usually not one conversation. It probably goes on for a while, but Paul would really engage. Uh, odds are he probably knew who the player or players were that I was talking about. Then uh, he'd probably want to watch some tape on them to get a better understanding. He'd probably want to talk to the coaches to get their feel for how that player or players would fit into the roster and um, how much they were behind the deal. 
You'd want to understand the short term and the long term. So, I mean, he really would ask all the, the really good questions. And then if he didn't like it, he would push you hard. And if you were good with your discussions and arguments, you'd probably win the day. And if you weren't, you'd probably lose the day and move on to the next thing. So um, very rarely was there a, here's a deal, we've got five minutes to decide it, unless it's draft day, and then those are discussions that probably were ongoing prior to draft day. So a um, lot of really thoughtful questions, you know, you know, but I'd say first and foremost, he would he would approach it more from the team side uh, and then work his way toward the business side, the cap side, those kinds of things. Was it different dealing with him as in the NFL context than the NBA? Yeah, I think in the NFL context, I wasn't ever pushing any deal. I was just taking the deals that our guys wanted to do to Paul and hopefully I got all the information and asked all the right questions so I could answer Paul's questions. And if I didn't, um, I'd either go back and get more information or I'd just connect him with uh, the GM or the coach or whomever it might be. But, um, yeah, I would never say, hey, we got to get this uh, offensive guard because he, uh, he can pull and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and move to his left. I would try to first work through the cap questions with the organization and then the personnel questions and, uh, kind of filter it out and then get, you know, Paul's blessing. And, and I don't think Paul ever vetoed a deal in the NFL. He's not while I was there. Um, I think we asked all the right questions. I think we got all the right answers. And, um, you know, you hire the people and you hope they're good at what they do and then you give them a lot of leeway. But then you hold them accountable if they're not getting the job done, um, you know, over a reasonable period of time. Um, you know, Paul Paul didn't have a, you know, it, it's yours for the rest of your life. He expected you to get results, and if he didn't get results, he was probably interested in making a change. Bob Witsit with us, former Blazers president and general manager. His book is called Game Changer. You can get it on Amazon. It's out next week. You can get it in Barnes & Noble, any bookstore across the country as well. Bob, the, the job of a general manager today versus... Maybe if we go back to 2000, 20, 23 years ago or so, um, has, has it changed much in your eyes? Can you still win in a small market? I think you absolutely can. I think it's really only changed maybe one, possibly two ways. The biggest way is, is the evolution of social media. And, you know, there's so many voices out there, and, and many of the players have become their own brand. Uh, you've always had to deal with media, but with the, the instant uh, social media aspect, you could spend all day long just, just doing that. And you've got to do uh, enough of it, but you've got to keep your eye on building your team and uh, developing the relationships that you need. And I think the other thing that's always been important but continues to evolve is managing the salary cap. Now with the new labor agreement starting with most of the rules kicking in next year, with the second apron, you've you you know mistakes are never good. But if you make one of these mistakes today, with the dollars that are out there, you know n not just is it an economic problem, but you really can paralyze your franchise from a cap point of view for many years. So, I think you have to continue to draft extremely well. You have to develop your players extremely well. You have to really be out there in the trade market and, and, and find something before the rest of the league 
really understands that's possibly going to be a good deal. You have to be willing to move your guys possibly a little early as opposed to too late. Um, but no, other than that, the business is really the same. The style of play has changed. We're much more of a three-point league than we used to be, which is fun and is exciting. So you have to you have to know what style you're building and, and committing to and, and developing. But uh, uh, you know, I think the job of management is, is extremely important. You know, you're you're hiring coaches, you're giving them really big contracts for for extended extended periods of time. The coaching staffs are big, so if you're going to make a change, it's a huge change to clean out the whole coaching staff. So. Uh, I think you just, you know, like it was in the past, you just have to really continue to do your homework really well, be committed to what you're doing, and try to uh, do more things right and fewer things wrong. Everybody's going to make mistakes. I've made mistakes. We all make mistakes. But you got to get more things right than you get wrong. And if you do that, you're probably going to be heading the right way. I, I keep thinking about you and the potential for expansion of the NBA and whether or not you'd want to get involved and in what capacity. You know, you mentioned early in the call, you know, whatever comes next for you. Could that be – could we see Bob Witsit back involved with the NBA in short order? No, absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of not making it any secret, but I'd love to be involved with an expansion team in Seattle should expansion come down the road. I personally believe it will, uh, but I certainly don't speak for the league. Uh, I would love to be involved, and I'm pretty wide open as to what capacity I, uh, you know, could be anything from being part of ownership to if you need me to sell popcorn, I'll do that. And probably there's a lot of areas in between, but um, I would love to see that happen. I think it would be great for Seattle, and frankly, I think it would be great for Portland. I've always thought when the Blazers are playing well, and when the Sonics were in existence and they were playing well, that's a great rivalry. And, and one of the things you need in sports, I think, is a great rivalry. And uh, uh, we need that in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, hopefully the Blazers, with the, the new direction they have now, will continue to grow and get better and better. Hopefully someday in the near term, you know, the, the NBA will put an RFP out and let cities try to go get an expansion team and, and I know Seattle will try to get in on that, and if we're successful, hopefully we can build a good team. And someday down the road, hopefully those two franchises are duking it out for the Western Conference Championship, and both cities are revved up. I think that would be exciting. That would be fun. That would be good for everybody. Give us a, a last question here. Just some insight. You're in. You're in that world. You rub elbows with owners and ownership groups. Uh, the Blazers' sale is on everybody's mind. How important is it for a franchise to get direction and get ownership rather than sort of this weird trustee situation that they're in now? Well, I think any successful franchise, if you really look at it, it always starts with ownership. Um, ownership's commitment to the team, to the community, um, their vision, their patience. You know, the, the best franchises, if you look at them, the championship franchises historically, and I guess in the NBA, you can look at the Lakers, you can look at the Celtics. Uh, currently now, you can look at Denver. But these are usually, you know, the, the teams that win are usually, you know, Miami. They've got, you know, you know San Antonio. They've got, you know, consistency and, and commitment and, and, and vision. It's 
you know, you don't see the teams that are constantly being sold usually winning too often. You know, Golden State's had a, a really good run, and, and this ownership group's been together for quite a while, and they've been committed. So um, no matter how good you are at your job, you know, most of it happens behind closed doors, and, and that starts with the commitment from ownership. So it's extremely important, and, uh, you know, same thing in the NFL. I'm sure it's the same thing in, in, in pretty much all pro sports uh that's that's where it starts doesn't mean you can automatically win it but it's pretty hard to win it if you don't have the commitment from ownership bob witsit i appreciate you the book is game changer it's out next week good luck with it thanks so much john and uh uh let's let's hope the blazers uh get things heading north yeah i i hope so it feels like they turned a corner i i like what they did i I think uh, I, I loved hearing your assessment of the position Joe Cronin was in because I think a lot of people don't understand the job. I know when I first got in the business, I probably didn't understand really all the things that a general manager did. And so to have you kind of break that down and come away with it going, hey, uh, you know, I think he did well, uh, I think says a lot. Yeah, no, I think Joe did a really good job. And, uh, you know, I hope the fans appreciate that and, and, and agree with me. But that's certainly my take. Bob Witsit, there he is. The book's called Game Changer. You can pick it up next week. Leave it here. Really enjoyed that interview with Bob Witsit. You want to talk about it? 503-417-7575. How about J.R. Ryder leaving the arena in the third quarter in his uniform with his girlfriend going to his car with Bob Witsit running after him? Steven, you had to love that. Love that story. I mean, I remember you know being a kid watching J.R. Ryder. You always knew there's a little something off with that guy, but he was. A, I mean, he was a good player, and it's just like, man, you know, as the story goes, as he said it, you know, they were dominant. They were playing really well against the Lakers, dominating them. He hears one boo, and he's out. You know, and it just it shows the difficulty I think in coaching and being like a in management in professional sports, especially because all these guys have egos. Man, it was that's a great story. I, I just love that one. Let's go to the phone lines. Cam's in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead, Cam. Hi, John. Thanks for taking the call. I heard what you said about the Blazers uh, having a good pick and getting better off of it. I frankly couldn't disagree more. I think you got to pretend Damian Lillard never existed if you think the Blazers got better from that trade. we got three guys I can't recognize. You said one of them. I guess we... We traded a mediocre big who we paid too much. Now we have a lazy big that we're going to pay too much. We have one draft pick in 2029, so I guess the rebuild's been put off for another five years. And it's only one draft pick and the right to trade two others and get a slightly better pick, but it doesn't matter because it's still the Blazers who are going to be picking them. We might I get think, another guy yeah. with 50-year-old knees, or we might get another You're guy. You're starting from to sound like me, Cam. You're starting to sound like me. You're starting to sound like, you know, you and I are out on the front lawn yelling at ownership and management. Isn't the bigger issue you don't have faith that they're going to turn those picks into something that will make you happy? Let's be, let's drill down. Isn't that the issue? It's not faith because faith is, is a belief that you have that you can't attach to anything. I have 2.5 decades of fail blazers since Clyde Drexler <laughs> left to look at and say that the, the best predictor of performance is past performance and the past right. performance has been horrid. <laughs> If so great, even if, even if we hit it out of the park, it's just the next Lamarcus Aldridge or the next Damian Lillard who will be one in a generation. We will get no support for him, and that guy will leave too. 
what do you want out of this franchise? What do you what what is it you're looking for as a fan of the Blazers? You're investing your time, your energy, maybe your money if you're buying tickets. I don't know if you're buying tickets, but you are definitely invo- investing emotional energy. What do you want in return? Uh, the team needs to sell. It needs to go, and it needs to go to Phil Knight. It needs to go to Nike because with the market that Portland has to work with, which the Bucks have just proven is plenty big enough to get whoever you need because they can do it. Uh, but but even that being said, with this sort of market, you need more brand power. You need to put shine on the logo, and nobody does that for a team. I, I think quite like Nike can do it, and Phil Knight can do it. And we need to make we need to make the Blazers cool to play for again, like they were in the '90s, instead of you know that poor team that can never get it across the finish line. Yeah, you don't trust them right now, and I don't blame you for not trusting them. But I do think Joe Cronin got the best deal that he could get for Damian Lillard right now. Bob Witsit signing off on that makes me feel better about having that opinion. I didn't know Witsit was going to say that before he came on, but Witsit, you know, Witsit likes what Cronin got. But isn't, Anna, you stepped into the studio. You grew up rooting for the Blazers, sitting on the uh, living room floor, listening to Bill Shonley. Um, I think you have at different times sort of thrown your hands up as a Blazer fan and said, hey, it's not happening. We're cursed. Yeah, I, and I'm kind of with that caller right now. Like, I want to be enthusiastic, but I agree with so much of what that caller is saying. I don't know how old that caller is. He said two and a half. 78. 78. Okay. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. He said two and a half decades, right? So I'm like 25, so I'm a little older. Um, a lot older. And then... I don't know. I just, I want to be enthusiastic, but I don't have it in me. Like, I want to mm. root for the team, but I feel like with this trade, and I knew it was coming, and I don't wish ill will upon Damian Lillard at all. I hope he goes and is successful, but it really leaves me grasping at, like, what what do I root for now? I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that I want to invest so the you, energy into even... So you feel like even, you're starting over again. I feel like I'm starting yeah. over, and I'm, I'm not sure Like I want to invest the energy into learning who mm. the players are again, even. Wow. Because I'm like, well, how long are they going to be here? I don't know. And I feel awful about that. I want to be enthusiastic, but I'm having a hard time finding that fire inside. Do me. you agree with the caller that if a sale of ownership would suddenly jolt fans back into believing, hoping, having faith, whatever you want to use for your terminology. Yeah, I mean, I think that would, um, it would help. I don't think that's the end-all, be-all solution. I think it would tremendously help. But I also know the reality that they're not selling. They're just, they're going to keep holding on to this, and Jody Allen's going to keep collecting whatever it is that she collects for the team. Management fee. And, you know, like yeah. when they came out with a statement that said, we're not at all interested in selling, I kind of, I believe them. They're just going to sit tight. She's going to collect, what is it, 3%, 5%. I don't know what she's getting. Whatever on uh, on $3 billion. She's getting a management fee on the estate itself. Uh, Stephen, do you share Cam in Eugene's sentiment that, you know, he sounds like he's, lost hope in this franchise i don't i don't share the same sentiment but i don't i do understand where he's coming from because you know like he said two and a half decades you know 25 years 
you go back, that was really the last time the Blazers had a championship contender. You know, the the Pippen team with Rashid uh, playing in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers in 99. Like, that's the real last team that they had that was a true contender. That was 25 years ago. So I understand that there shouldn't be a lot of faith in the management and the ownership as well. Um, I did find it interesting today, Dwayne Hankins, he said the team is not for sale. Uh, they made that very clear uh, that, that Jody Allen is investing in the team long-term, going to make all the right choices. So af- afraid for all these fans that want you know a new ownership, I don't know how quickly that's going to be. Um, and it's just one of these things, John, like I-, I do have hope that in my mind, basketball is one on the court and is one by talent. And it's not necessarily an ownership. So I want to believe that Scoot Henderson is going to be that guy that can really help elevate. And he says all the right things. He says he's a, you know, he, he's a competitive. He wants to win. He's a baller in my mind. So I'm going to keep out hope that at some point he turns into that guy, John. So I, I, you know, maybe I'm playing fool's gold here. And maybe it's fool's gold, and I want to just hope. And maybe it's just my hope. But I'm going to believe still in the Blazers that at some point it'll turn around. Dwayne Hankins, team president, was asked about the, the broadcasts, the Blazers broadcasts, are going to lose their folksy Pacific Northwest feel. They're going to feel more like a national broadcast. Is this a good idea? And our goal really on this one is to have a real national feel to our broadcast instead of uh, what you typically see with local RSN broadcasts. The, the national broadcast feel is we hired Greg, Greg Fonseca from ESPN to take on the production role of our team. And he has uh, a number of ideas that are going to help. Obviously, I think for us, it's, it's, um, it's not only storytelling, really getting in-depth and helping tell the stories of the players both on and off the court. It's the graphics package. It's the cameras that we use. It's all of those things. Um, and, and we just really want to have you know, a top-of-the-line broadcast. It's our vision that that team has in place and hoping to get that going. I'm here to tell you that you could do shadow puppet broadcast with your hands on the wall of a cave if the team wins 60 games in a season people will watch it anna you're smiling as you hear Dwayne hankins talk about that is he trying to sell us something that is uh you know not what it appears to be no i mean it's fine it reminds me of like you know i've worked in newsrooms for years and years and when you get a new news director anyone who works in tv news knows that uh the new news director comes in, you get one every, uh, I don't know, four or five years or so, and they want to change the set, they want to change the graphics, they want to change the look, they want to change the news motto. So, like, I can't tell you working at K2 for, like, almost, you know, 17, 18 years, how many times I had to change the voicemail greeting on my uh, phone just because we had a new boss in town and we now were a different motto like we were the k2 breaking news station it was the power of 2000 it was the power of two it was k2 connects it was k2 breaking news k2 community like every few years everybody had to go through and it was like a rite of passage so i mean on your side (laughs) on your side and so we're for you yeah and so it's great, like, there's nothing wrong, right, with changing the look of the broadcast and the feel and to give it a national feel and no to hire lo- somebody. New logo, from Mike Flags. New Mike Flags and everything. But, like, the product has to be there. you got to win some games. you got to play some good basketball. If you have great graphics, but the content sucks, like, people 
still aren't going to watch it and support it. So, like, help us. Help us want to root for the team. Is it a problem that the Blazer, like, Blazer fans are so good that they are okay with an average team? Like, Dame is awesome. Top 75 player of all time. Not saying he's not. But he, you know, they got to the Western Conference Finals one time, and the reaction to him being traded is like, you know, someone died. Like, it's just, like, they were so okay with mediocrity that is that a downfall of the fan base, basically. I I, I know what you're getting at. And, And, yes, the fact that there's not competition from an NFL team or a Major League Baseball team or an NHL team in the market definitely allows the Blazers to you know, get away with underachievement in a way they wouldn't be if they were in Seattle. And, you know, if the Mariners aren't good, hell breaks loose. The Mariners blow a big uh, opportunity at the end of the season to get into the postseason, hell breaks loose. Same thing happens with the Seahawks. They, there's an accountability factor that happens when you have competition. It, competition is good. It makes you better. Blazers don't have that right now. Don't give me the Timbers. Can't quite do it with the Ducks or the Beavers because there's some, you know, our Venn diagram of Blazer fans will show you that there's some crossover in those fan bases. But, you know, if the Blazers are mediocre, there's they're not not up against Oregon football or Oregon State football when it comes to the heart of their season or season ticket packages or sponsorships. So, yeah, they get away with hell. They get away with not being that good. And some people going, hey, there's nothing else. I'll still go see it. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. You know how uh, we've been asking the question lately, are there more fights in NFL stadiums because we're seeing them on camera? Or are there actually more fights at NFL stadiums? I've got another question. Are there more bear attacks that are happening in the world these days? Or... Has that just become a sexier story that everybody's reporting now? Like, have you noticed, like, an uptick in bear attack stories, or is it just me? Uh, there's definitely been an uptick in the reporting of bear attacks. Yeah, and that's the video what... of people. I mean, I don't you think, like, people have been encountering bears all along, and then we're just hearing about it more? Maybe the bears did a better job of, like, covering their tracks, you know? Oh, I, I see what you, you did know, there. No, I don't. <laughs> that was wow. But there was a couple in Canada uh-huh. and their dog yeah. over the weekend, experienced hikers, but apparently the bear got them. Mm. The bear won that, got the dog too. And I know there's going to be people out there like, more upset about the dog <laughs> than the people, but well, I'm leading with the people. Okay. Like, got them how? Like Killed all three of them. Seriously? Killed them all. Ooh. Yeah. They said uh, there's like... Uh, 14% of bear attacks. I don't know why I have this in my head. Okay. And uh, with a fatality. 14%. Oh, yeah. So you're 86% <laughs> going to survive. I know why you have that in your head. Yeah. Because you're obsessed with things like that. Well, what, yeah. what's um, the key? What's the key to surviving the bear attack, John? <laughs> yeah. We need some input from people who have survived bear attacks. We need to talk to the 14%. Are you out there? No, the 14% that oh, the died. Rest. Oh, okay. They well, can't talk. Yeah. We're going to get like a medium over here to talk to them, have a seance, you know? <gighs> oh, wait. I'm hearing from Joe, who was hiking. Firing in all cylinders Yellowstone. Today, clearly. Joe, what was it? Well, I played dead, and the bear didn't know that I was 
I'm supposed to not bug me. Well, that's what, you know, like they talk about. They Don't you love this? And they say uh, when you encounter different animals yeah. in the woods that your strategy is different. There's some animals you're supposed to get really big and scream and make a lot of noise. Like a mountain lion. And in some cases, you throw whatever yeah. you've got at your availability. You don't want to make yourself an easy That's kill. the mountain lion? I think it's the mountain lion. Okay. And then what about the bear? I think with the bear, my instinct would be to climb a tree, but then I've seen videos of these bears. They go up the tree like they're a chimpanzee. Like, they just go right up the tree. You know what I mean? It's just the easiest thing ever. For the, like, Stephen, have you not seen these bears go right up the tree? Yeah, oh, I've seen them. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about. They, they're athletic. They're beasts. They're athletic beasts. I feel like, you got, isn't it, you got to yell at them like you got to get bigger than them? I don't know. I don't know what I'm I supposed to do. Feel like we have a certain responsibility. They've been here. working out these bears. <laughs> Allegedly, well, I, you know. The wildlife experts will tell you that there there may be more of these encounters because of where people are living and recreating. Like we're encroaching into bear territory. But these guys and, were in like the Banff National Park. Like they yeah, were hiking. Yeah. Where they know there are bears. Sure. But yeah. then they helicoptered in after yeah because they got a sos call from another hiker they helicoptered in encountered the an aggressive bear and euthanized it mm -hmm. and uh but bear got them and their dog wow killed them all that's uh concerning kind of rough um steven have you researched yet what we're supposed to do if we encounter a bear so we're not giving out and bad information kind of bear? well i have it i i thought we Is were gonna it? have experts call in that's what i was hoping for okay oh well, do we have a bear expert yes we do oh no it's craig and westland who wants to talk about the blazers now do we have a bear expert you know what do you do if you encounter a bear okay according to doityourselfrv.com. Oh, this is, <laughs> sounds reliable. Let me just see what they said. Six things you should never do. Well, I know what never to do. I don't. Don't insult the bear. <laughs> Making faces and calling names at the bear is not going to help you. Okay, number one, do not run or climb a tree. <laughs> that would have been my first instinct. Well, there's a song about that, the Bear and Tennis Shoes song. It climbs the tree. It's right there in the song. The worst thing you could do is to start screaming... Oh, turn oh, and it. run. Oh, <laughs> according to uh, do it yourself RV. So according to the National Park Service, so it's a .gov. This is official. Okay. Uh, brown and grizzly bears. If you're attacked by a brown grizzly bear, leave your backpack on and play dead. You lay flat on your stomach, your hands clasped behind your neck. Spread oh, your legs. Harmony. Spread your legs to make it harder for the bear to turn you over and remain oh. still until the bear leaves the area. Spread your legs. No thanks. <laughs> spread no your thanks. legs. I'll take my chances and yell at it. No With thanks. your hands clasped? According to do-it-yourself RV, who might be the experts, they say don't get any closer, don't run, do not separate from your group, don't let your pets play near the bear, do not feed the bear, do not block the bear. Um, That's a lot of don'ts, but know, there's not a whole lot of do. Think again about getting uh, going camping, <laughs> you know? That's another reason not to camp. I could... Also, I couldn't even tell the difference between different right. types of bears. Here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to get an expert like person who deals with bears to, on the show tomorrow tell us what to do. Thank God. Maybe we save a life. I bet you we will. Maybe we save one life. <laughs>
We'll get a wildlife expert on the show tomorrow, guaranteed. All right, coming up, the five at five. Anna's got five great stories, no bears included. Leave it here. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Grizzly bears, polar bears, brown bears, sun bears, black bears, panda bears, sloth bears. There's a lot of bears out there trying to keep you safe. I keep seeing more bear attacks. I said I was going to get a bear expert on the show tomorrow. I don't think we're going to have to wait till tomorrow. We've got full phone lines with people wanting to talk about bears. I want to get to your calls, so do not hang up. If you were a bear expert, you might save a life on today's show. Let's start by going to Kaiser Mike, who wants to talk about bears. What do you know? So... As an avid mountain climber, uh, I was out in eastern Washington this past summer climbing Sacagawea Peak. Uh, that's in the Willowa Mountains, eastern Oregon, which is an extension of the Rockies. There's a big population of brown bear out there, as well as another big population of brown bear in Oregon is in between, say, the I-5 corridor and the coast. So there's a lot of brown bear out there. And what you don't want to do, or you, you don't want to run away. Okay. Uh, you want to move back, walk back super slow, and I guess online it says that they're they're going to be you know almost just as scared as you as you are scared of them. Uh, and also they feed at dawn and dusk, and it's a good idea not to hike through the night if you can help it. Okay. If you see them, should I talk to the bear and like to let them know I'm not prey that I'm a human? Or wave my um, arms? What would you do as you're backing away? You know, I would just immediately start praying to God myself. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, well, okay. Also, they do you also speak do bear, say, John? Make noises. Yeah. Get big, wave your arms, make noises, but also back away. Okay, there he goes. According to uh, the National Park Service, they said once a bear is noticed to you, here are some tips. Identify yourself by talking calmly to the bear so that it knows you're human. That, that was my idea. <laughs> Hello, I'm Re- a radio This host. one says remain still. <laughs> remain still and stand your ground. But I want to, my instinct would be to back away slowly. Let's go to Ted in Beaverton. Uh, Ted, what do you got? Hey, I got a little uh, saying that I heard uh, that I think is pretty good. So if it's black, fight back. If it's brown, just lay on down, and if it's white, just say goodnight. <laughs> yeah, those, those polar bears. I'm telling you. Those polar bears. You, I mean, you really got to go. have to go out of your way to encounter a polar yeah, bear. Yeah, but though. what if you do? <laughs> I like that he has it color-coded. You know, I'd be sitting there in that moment of panic going, what is it, brown? Fight. Get, brown, get down, back. <laughs> yeah, black, fight yeah. it back, brown, get down, white, say goodnight. And then I'm thinking about Leonardo DiCaprio in Remnant, you know? Yeah. He ended up killing the bear. Yeah. What would be the weapon? I guess you'd want a gun, you know? But could you, would you feel good about having a knife in a fight with a bear? I, I really wouldn't. I don't think there's any weapon that I would feel good about. I wouldn't feel great about that. Yeah, truck you driver, get, you gotta get yeah. close to it. That'd be a problem. Truck driver Ken, what do you got? 
Well, uh, you've covered a lot of it there. You mentioned about 12 different kinds of bears. There's only three indigenous to North America, and they're easy to tell apart. Black bears are black, brown bears are brown, polar <laughs> bears are white. Yeah. Uh, size differences are a black bear, a large black bear, 200, 300 pounds, maybe a little over 300 pounds, and you're going to be way taller than they are. So, you know, they may want what you've got in your cooler or sitting on your picnic table, but they're really not interested in you. Uh, brown bear, grizzly bear, Kodiak, those are just all different varieties of the same bear. But those things can go up as big as a 1,000 pounds. You do not want to mess with them. Yeah. And polar bears, yeah, you're just you're just an after-dinner myth. Yeah, I know. They're big. They're big and bad. Uh, National Park Service says this, along the brown bear, black bear uh, front, with black bears, if you're attacked by a black bear, do not play dead. Okay? Do not play dead. Try to escape. That's what he said. He said, black, yeah. fight back. Yeah. To uh, Try to escape to a secure place such as a car or building. No kidding. If the escape is not possible, fight back using any object available. Concentrate your kicks and blows on the bear's face and muzzle. Okay. Face and muzzle. Okay. With a brown bear or a grizzly bear, if you're attacked by a brown bear, leave your backpack on and play dead. Lay on your stomach with your hands clasped behind your neck. <laughs> Here we go again. Spread your legs to make it harder for the bear to turn you over. Yeah, spread the legs. Remain still until the bear leaves the area. Fighting back will increase the intensity oh. of the attack. However, the- I'm dead. That's that's it. I'm dead. Yeah, I, gotta- I would not have the wherewithal yeah. in the midst of that encounter to decide just to lie down. Yeah, are you a black bear or a brown bear? I won't be able to decide decipher colors in that situation. I, I I don't know what to do. Also, I have a problem with the you know the first caller said they're more scared of you than you are of them. Uh, that's not true. I am definitely more scared of that bear <laughs> than he is of me. You know, I saw a video of a guy. He's at a campsite, and this bear is wandering through, and he tries to like usher the bear to the area like out of the campsite and he's acting like the bear's a dog <laughs> and the bear finally s- wasn't really paying him any attention the bear finally looks at him and then takes a swipe at him with his paw and just like razor blades on oh. his side the way that he cut him yeah it was like you know that bear's walking around with razor blades for paws this is going to sound really unintelligent but where are the nice bears that just like eat berries and stuff like, where, yeah. are there any of those I, bears? Like, are those the same bears that wind up attacking a human because they're sort of scared and they just go on the attack I'm, to defend themselves? I'm having a real hard time with the brown bear, black bear thing because I'm looking at pictures. And you know what? <laughs> when it comes to bears, I don't see color. I, they all look the <laughs> same to me. Steven, just <laughs> Steven, can you? Like, I'm looking at a picture of a brown bear. I'm like, I would actually think that's a black bear. You got to make sure you got your glasses with you at all times. Excuse me. What color bear are you? <laughs> So Identify yourself. I know you're living here in the Pacific Northwest, but where did your par- where did your parents what well that could, did they come that from? could be involved in the conversation that you're having with the bear to let it know that you're human. <laughs> yeah, would you say you're more brown? You look like a dark brown. <laughs> Let's go to Robert in Bellevue. Oh Robert, help us. Oh my gosh, you guys! I had an encounter with a black bear and the same night a brown bear. What? I was camping, camping up in Banff with my family. We didn't have tents, so we slept on the ground, a bunch of kids. And the guys in the, in the, the 
the, the forest guys told us, just lie on the ground. If they attack you, roll over on your stomach. So this brown bear, black bear came by, sniffed me a little, sniffed my daughter, sniffed the, the food we had, and then walked away. And it was about three feet tall or so. Then right after that, like a half hour, I was looking, I was scared to death, and this brown bear, grizzly bear, came right up to me from the bathroom area, from where the trash cans are. And before I knew it, it was right in my face. I'm serious. It was three inches from my nose, sniffing me. And I sat there. My, I don't think my heart beat at all. I just looked at it like I didn't breathe. And, and it walked away. And it went over and sniffed my daughter, who had been coughing earlier. And then it got up where our food, our, our stove was. And it was huge. It was, you know, it was it, the, the, the stove came up to like a belly button. I don't know, six, seven feet tall. I mean, this thing really honestly came right to my face, sniffed me, and walked away. So I don't know what that means for anybody, but um, he didn't He didn't go after me. All right, you stayed still and silent, and then you never went camping again, right? No, no but we stuffed ourselves in the back of this pickup. We didn't even have a camper, so we, were just, we didn't sleep on the ground again for like a year. I mean, Robert's last <laughs> camping trip, ladies and gentlemen. Did you spread your legs <laughs> out so he couldn't get to you? Crazy. I mean, seriously, this, I could still see it. I mean, I could picture it. It just came right. I could see his little nose, big nose. Yeah. Yeah. No, do you hear, he's not saying he hasn't gone camping I yet. Know. He's just saying he hasn't slept on the ground This again. is the last time I went camping right now. <laughs> I don't know. It was in Banff again, too. The Banff? Area, but it was a campground. Yes. It was a regular old campground. And, so and they had you... all these signs in the windows of the Forest Service guys that, you know, had a picture of a bear attacking a guy's backpack. And that's all they said. Yeah, don't worry about it. Just roll over in your stomach, and they'll probably get bored with you before they get to your vital organs. That's what they oh, said. Okay. What? Okay. Wow. Robert in Bellevue. Vital organ call. So most of so okay the black bear let's just talk about the black bear they they mostly eat berries and fruit and insects but in the spring they might prey on young elk and deer yeah. and they also like human food and I garbage don't, I don't trust to have a conversation with them about their diet while they're <laughs> rummaging around my backpack as I'm face down on the campsite um all right Legs spread maybe we saved a life today maybe none of us ever want to go camping again I don't know what just happened. We've got Monday Night Football coming up. We're back with another great show tomorrow. We will, uh, we've will. we got big guests all week long. We're going to talk with Jonathan Smith, Bruce Barnum. We will uh, visit, uh, get a visit from Cal Coach Justin Wilcox later in the week as well. I appreciate everybody who makes this show part of their day. Grab the podcast of the show if you're looking for a podcast, and, and we'll catch you tomorrow. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time.